A few weeks ago, the attention of the entire world was focused on an incredible rescue attempt when 12 boys on a soccer team and their coach were trapped in a cave in Thailand. How many of you followed the story in the news? They were stranded two and a half miles inside a mountain for over a week before they were found. And when they were found, the odds against them being rescued were overwhelming. Monsoon rains threatened to flood the caves. The passageways were extremely tight in places. And the rescue involved long swims through muddy water, an extremely difficult task, even for highly trained technical divers. Many thought that their situation was hopeless. But despite the odds against them, all of them were rescued. Today, we're going to consider the story of another dramatic rescue despite overwhelming odds. An entire nation is trapped, and it appears there is no way out. But as we'll see, God can still make a way where there seems to be no way. And that is true in our lives as well. There are times when we feel trapped, when we feel like there is no way out. There's no way out of this discouragement. There's no way out of this depression. There's no way out of this debt. There's no way that God could possibly heal this relationship. There's no way that God could change me. And yet, the God who rescued his people thousands of years ago is the same God who rescues people today. This morning, we're concluding our series of messages called Stories of Hope. And we're going to look at one of the most famous, one of the most hope-filled stories in the entire Bible is found in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And as the book of Exodus begins, it's important to remember the command that God gave to Adam and Eve back in the book of Genesis. And that command was this, be fruitful and multiply. Now, why did God command Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply? Because people are made in the image of God. And God wanted to multiply his image throughout the world. He wanted people who understood that they were to be the object of his love, that they were to know him and love him and pursue his purpose for their lives. That was the reason God said, be fruitful and multiply. And even after the flood, that's the same command that God gives to Noah. Hey, Noah, there's only eight of you left. Be fruitful and multiply. And we see that happening. As you walk through the pages of, of Genesis, you, you see that there's, there's Noah. And then we come to a man named Abraham. And so God makes a covenant with Abraham. We looked at this a few weeks ago. And God says to Abraham, hey, look, here's the deal. I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to give you so many descendants, so many kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, you won't be able to count them all. They're going to be more than the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore, and God is making good on that promise because there is Abraham, and then a little boy is born, and who is he, this child of promise? Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and these generations are, are, are following. And then we get here to Exodus Chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Now who's behind all this? God is. God is multiplying his image in the world to bring glory to himself. And if you think about it, there were two things that God promised to Abraham when he cuts this covenant. He says, Abraham... Two things, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you a whole lot of people. Now, if you're somebody working in the world of real estate and a prospective um, client comes to you, they want to sell your home and they say, you know, what, what should I think about? What should I consider when it comes to buying or selling the home? You would say the top three things are what? What are they? 
Location, location, location. Now, this applies to what's happening here in the story of God's people. God has given Abraham an incredible location for this land where God wants his people to live. It's called the land of Canaan. Now, what's really amazing is that that area of land is so critically important, not just in the Old Testament, but in our day as well. When you listen to the news, what's the epicenter of everything happening? It's the Middle East. That land of Canaan is critically important. And way back in the the Bible um, times, there was this idea that we have to have water to live. It was very important. And so this area was called the Fertile Crescent. It was also called the cradle of civilization because the different superpowers were fighting for world dominance. And and here's what's really fascinating. You have the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they want to rule the world. But if they're going to do that, they have to go through Canaan. They have to go through God's land. And that's true of Egypt. If Egypt wants to rule the world, where do they have to go? Through Canaan, through God's land. And this piece of real estate that God promises to Abraham and his descendants is not only important from the standpoint of military superiority, it is the focal point of trade and finance. Because if you're a a business guy, if you're a a caravan coming through the Arabian Peninsula, you have got to go through Canaan and get water or you're not going to make it. And so what I want us to see, church, is this. The land that God promised to Abraham becomes the center of the world. Now think about that. The land that God promises to Abraham, this this little piece of land called Canaan, becomes the center of the world. And this is really fascinating. God says to Abraham, hey, I'm going to bless you, and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so God is so strategic in his plan. He puts Canaan right in the middle of all the trade and all the finance because as people come through this hub, they hear stories about God. They hear stories about God's deliverance and God's people, and they take these stories to the rest of the world. And God becomes famous. His glory is extended throughout the world, just as he predicted. Now, here's the the big problem, though. As the book of Exodus begins, God's people are not in the promised land. Where are they? Who can tell me? They're not in the promised land. Where are they? They're in Egypt. And what's going on in Egypt? Is it good or bad? Yeah, it's really bad. They're slaves in Egypt, so they cry out to God and say, God, would you please do something? And after a very long time, God decides the time is right, and he sends a deliverer named Moses. Now, Moses is a rather reluctant liberator because when God calls Moses, Moses has all these excuses. Well, God, you know, what if they don't believe me? Um, You know, what if? And he raises all these objections. He says, you know, I'm not a very good speaker. So, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you send my brother Aaron? And God says, no way, Moses. You're my man for the job. And then God gives Moses this amazing promise. He says, Moses... I will be with you. So you go to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and you deliver my message, and you tell Pharaoh that the God of heaven and earth says, let my people go so that they may worship me. And how does Pharaoh respond? With a hard head and a hard heart, because he doesn't want to let go of his labor force, all these Hebrew slaves. So God decides he's going to send some plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt. And one after one they come until the final plague. The angel of death comes to the land of Egypt. And the firstborn of every household will surely die unless something is done. Do you remember what it is? The blood of a lamb 
has to be smeared on the doorpost of the house. And if that happens, the angel of death will do what? Pass over that house. And that's where the term Passover comes from. It goes back to that story where God not only spares his people because of the blood of the lamb, but he sets them free, and that points to Jesus. Remember the song that we sang? He, he's like a, a lion, right? He roars like a lion, and then he what? He bled as the lamb. Because that's what the scripture says. Jesus is the lamb of God. In fact, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, hey, look, there is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, this morning, as we look at this particular story, it is so important because it's told over and over again. As you read through the Old Testament, the, the story is, is recounted. And I can just imagine the moms and the dads that tell their sons and the daughters the story of how God can deliver, how God has the power to prove his might and his strength. Well, as you look at the story and get to chapter 14, Pharaoh has finally decided to let Israel go. In fact, he wants them out now. And this is a big, big group of people. Uh, Bible scholars believe that the nation of Israel may have numbered as much as two million people. Now, just think about an exodus that size. And so these people are leaving Egypt, and then all of a sudden, Pharaoh does what? Changes his mind. He wants his labor force back, so he pursues them. And now the nation of Israel is in what seems to be an impossible situation. The Red Sea is right in front of them. Pharaoh's armies behind them. The mountains surround them. And it seems like there's no way out. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt like that? Overwhelmed, trapped, believing there was no way out? I was thinking today about all the ways that this story plays out in our lives. For the parent whose child is troubled and failing in school, the person who's diagnosed with cancer, the person who's on the verge of losing their business, the person that is drowning in debt, the person whose marriage is falling apart, there's all these situations where it seems like there is no way out. There's no way things will ever change. And into that situation, God says, wait a minute, there's hope. And so I want us to do this. I want us to look at this story and see these principles that come from the story of the Red Sea that we can incorporate into our lives today so that we can live with the one thing we can't live without. And what is that? It's hope. So here's the first principle. Realize that God has allowed you to be where you are. God has allowed you to be where you are. You know those, those signs at the mall, the little maps, and it says, you are here. I want you to think about your life. Imagine that your life is like a map on the wall. You know, think about the day you were born. God knows the day that you're going to exit this world. But there's this, this timeline. There's this story that's unfolding. Where are you now? And how do you feel about that? I mean, some of you might say, well, I'm happy about where I am. Others might say, well, I'm kind of sad about where I am. I'm frustrated by where I am. I'm disillusioned by where I am. I never thought I would be where I am today. But here's something that changes everything for us. It completely shifts our perspective when we realize this. When you're a, a child of God, wherever you are, God has either placed you there or allowed you to be there for reasons that maybe only he knows. And we see this so clearly in the story in Exodus 14. It says this in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, and I want you to notice 
how specific the instructions are. There's a lot of words here that are difficult to pronounce, but they tell us exactly where God's people were commanded to be. It says, tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pihahiroth, near Migdal in the sea. They are to encamp, notice this, by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, who tells the Israelites to set up camp by the Red Sea where they will be trapped by Pharaoh's army? Who tells them to do it? God does. Moses and Israel are following God's instructions. When they end up between a rock and a hard place. There's a young couple that I was talking to this week and they're really discouraged because they were telling me I've done everything right. We've tried to honor God. And now we're in a position that is just so painful and difficult and confusing. Friends, do you realize that when that happens, we honestly shouldn't be surprised? Because the reality is that wherever we find ourselves as followers of Christ, we're there because God's placed us there or he's allowed us to be there. Andrew Murray pastor in South Africa, was going through a really difficult time in his life. And as he thought about his situation, he wrote this in his journal. He said, I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. Wouldn't it be great if we could say that too? When life is confusing and difficult and hard, if we could say, you know what? I'm here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, for his time. And even as I say that, I, I, I sense what some of you may be thinking, but what if it's my fault? You know, God didn't lead me where I am. I made some bad choices. My life is a mess, and I'm responsible for it. So what do I do now? Well, the Scripture tells us again and again that when we have wandered away from God and away from his path for our life, what we need to do is turn around. We need to be rerouted back to God. And there's a word for this, this moral U-turn, where we head back to God. It's repentance. And God promises that as we return to him that he is faithful. He will forgive us. He will heal our hearts. But the reality is this. Even though that happens, there are consequences to the choices we make. We see that in the scripture. King David, a man after God's own heart, made some really bad consequences. God forgave him, but the consequences continued. But here's what I want you to think about, because this is so encouraging. Because God is sovereign, because God's in charge, he can take even those consequences and use them to accomplish something good in our lives, something that brings him glory. And so here's the deal. Wherever you are today, realize that you're there because God's placed you there or because God has allowed you to be there. And then take this next step. Second thing in your outline be more concerned about God's reputation than you are about your relief. Be more concerned about God's reputation than you are about your relief. Look at this next part of the story. God says in verse 4, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. That's exactly what happens. But, God says, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So let me ask you, when you're in a really tough situation when life's not working out the way that you had expected what kind of questions do you ask because these are the the ones we typically have going through our heads hey how did this happen to me how did I get into this mess what can I do to get out of this mess how can I find relief from the pain in my heart right now 
But church, there is another question we can ask that changes everything. This question is like turning on a floodlight in a stadium. And the question is this, how can God be glorified in my situation? How can God be glorified in my situation? Because notice in this story of the Red Sea that God intentionally orchestrates these events so that people will see his power and his glory. The Egyptians, Pharaoh, the Israelites, the host of heaven see the glory of God, the power of God displayed in the outcome of the story. And I think about what God is doing when Jesus comes to our world. Think about that last week in his life. I mean, everything that happens in the life of his son happens for the glory of God. And we started our service this morning singing this song, Hosanna, and that's what people were shouting as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're excited because they think that they have a, a hero now, a savior who do, will deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they're excited and they're shouting, but you know, what is Jesus thinking? And there's a section in John 12 that gives us some insight. It says, and this is Jesus speaking about his suffering and his purpose in coming into Jerusalem. He says, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. And then Jesus says this, Father, glorify your name. What is Jesus thinking about as he comes into this, this city and he knows he's going to die. He knows that he's going to be arrested and beaten and crucified. He is concerned about the glory of God being demonstrated in his life. And church, this is really important to understand. The whole story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is all about the glory of God. It's about his character and his reputation. Now here at our church, we talk a lot about the bad news and the good news because I think it's really important for us to, to live out of the center of the gospel and be able to share that with other people. And if you think about it, the gospel from beginning to end declares the glory of God and displays his character. And here's what I mean. Just track with me here. We talk about the fact that we all come into this world with a heart problem. It pulls us away from God, away from his purpose. And there's a three-letter word for this. What's it called? Sin. And we say that sin separates us from God. But why does sin separate us from God? It's because God is what? It's a four-letter word that starts with an H. He is holy and we're not. So even as you start looking at the bad news, it reflects the character of God. We've got a big problem because God's holy. And we're separated from God. But here's, here's the other thing. When we sin, God doesn't just look the other way. He doesn't say, hey, you know, kids will be kids. Here's a do-over. God says, if you sin, you will die. Now, why is it that God can't just look the other way? It's because of his character, isn't it? God is not only holy. There's another four-letter word that describes God. starts with a J. What is it? He is just. He is holy and he is just. And because of that, we can't rescue ourselves. We can't be perfect in God's eyes, which is what it would take to be acceptable to God. And because of his great love, God does what? He sends us a Savior. Jesus said it best, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So what is it that motivates Jesus to come to this world? A four-letter word starts with an L. It's love. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this. They lay down their life for their friends. And that's what Jesus does. After living a perfect life, he lays down his life on a cross so that we can be forgiven. And on the cross, this is an amazing thing. The justice of God and the love of God intersect. 
Because what happens is God says, I tell you what, I'm willing, I am willing to put your sin on my son to punish him in your place. I'm willing to allow his blood to be like the blood of the lamb in the Exodus. And I will pass over you if you put your faith in him. And and friends, the good news displays not only the, the love of God, it displays the sovereignty of God. Because think about this, when Jesus is taken down from that cross, what do his disciples think? They think it's over. They think the dream that Jesus had has died. It is crushed. But Jesus told them, hey, look, they're going to kill me, but three days later, what's going to happen? Yeah, I'm going to rise from the dead because nothing is over until my father says it's over. And God raises his son to life to prove that he is sovereign so the watching world can see his glory and his character. And there is something so important for us whenever we think about the cross And this is one of the reasons for giving that cross to the kids this morning, to put on their backpacks. The cross reminds us that God is a God who is holy, a God who is just, a God who loves us, and a God who is in charge of our lives and never waste the pain. Because think about this. The pain in Jesus' life has a purpose, a divine purpose. Without the pain, there would be no forgiveness. There would be no new life for us. And so when we're in a painful situation, we can ask this question, okay, God, this hurts, and I don't understand it, but how can this situation bring you glory? God, my marriage is in trouble, but how can this situation in my marriage bring you glory? How can I honor you? God, I don't know what to do about this financial mess. I don't know what to do about this illness or this tragedy, but I want you to be honored. I want you to be glorified. And think about what God does in this impossible situation with the parting of the Red Sea. His enemies are defeated. His children are delivered. His exploits are remembered, and his name is praised. Incredible, isn't it? Here's another another principle from this story, and this is a really important one. Number three, don't try to figure out, don't try to figure everything out. Just take the next right step. Just take the next right step. Here's how the story continues in verse 15. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Now just imagine this. I mean, here's Moses. He's got all these Israelites behind him. Probably screaming at the top of their lungs because Pharaoh's, you know, chariots are getting closer and closer. And God, it's just like, What? God says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Well, God, there's just one problem. The Red Sea's in front of us. (laughs) So God says, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. How many of you um, have ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments or a version of that where there's this, you know, this depiction in video of the Red Sea parting? You know, I think about what that would have been like for the Israelites. And there's a very interesting um, comment made by um, this person who's a very well-known Bible commentator. And he says this, that he doesn't believe the, the Red Sea opened all at one time. It opened progressively as Israel continued going through the Red Sea. And he says this, God never gives guidance for two steps at a time. I must take one step, and then I get light for the next. And isn't that how God works? I mean, he leads us day by day. He gives us strength and comfort moment by moment. There's a book written by Dale Carnegie. It's called How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. 
And he starts a book with the story of this medical student who was just consumed with worry. He was worried about getting through medical school and um, starting his practice and paying off his student loans. And he was so worried that he was working himself into a nervous breakdown. And then one day, this ancient, anxious medical student read 21 words by Thomas Carlyle that changed his life. And this student went on to become one of the most famous and one of the most accomplished physicians of his day. He was instrumental in organizing John Hopkins Medical Center. Um, he was a professor of medicine at Oxford University. He was even knighted by the King of England. His name was Sir William Osler, and these are the 21 words that changed his life. Our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what lies closely at hand. Do you hear that? Our main business is not to see what lies dimly at a distance, but to do what clearly lies at hand. And that is really what Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount. Hey, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Live one day at a time. Take the next right step, and then I'll show you the one after that. And that way you can move forward in faith. Now here's another principle from the story. Speaking of faith, view your current crisis as a faith-building opportunity. View your current crisis as a faith-building opportunity. I was talking to a, a young pastor who's planning a church up in uh, Philadelphia, and he sent me an email and said, hey, I got a really serious situation. I need you to give me a call and help figure it out. So I'm talking to him on the phone, and I'm listening, and it was a really serious situation that he was facing. And I said to him, I wanted to encourage him, and I said, you know what? I said, here's what God's doing. He's giving you an FBO. He says, what? I said, he's giving you a faith-building opportunity. And that's what every crisis is. That's what these impossible situations are. They're an opportunity for us to learn to trust God. And we see that in the story. This is from verse 30. It says, that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, notice what they do, the people feared the Lord, which is a way of saying they took God seriously and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. What does God want us to do when we're facing an impossible situation? He wants us to trust him. I think about this uh, sort of a definition of faith from Corey Ten Boom. She survived a Nazi concentration camp. She said, here's what faith stands for, F-A-I-T-H. It's a fantastic adventure in trusting him. And it is. And our faith is going to be tested, and that's what happens when we face these impossible situations. God is often testing our faith and asking us, will you trust me? I knew it looks impossible, but will you trust me? There's a story that I read this week about this guy named John, and John had this little girl named Melody, and Melody came to him one day and said, Daddy, would you build me a dollhouse? And so John said, yeah, honey, I'll build you a dollhouse out, out in the backyard. And so he goes back to reading his book. He's in the living room, and he looks out the window, and there goes his daughter by the window carrying these dolls in her arms. And then he looks, and there she goes again. She's got dishes. And he looks over at his wife and says, what is going on? And she said to her husband, hey, you promised to build her a dollhouse, so she's getting ready. And John said, at that point, I just got in the truck, went to Home Depot, got some building supplies, and I started building that dollhouse that afternoon. In that story, a, a daughter's faith moves her dad to action. 
And friends, that's true in our relationship with God. Our faith moves God to action. And so whatever you're facing today, God says, trust me. Trust me to deliver you in my way and in my time. And as we do that, our faith grows and gets stronger. Let me give you one more key principle from this story. And it's simply this. Praise God for his divine deliverance. Praise God for his divine deliverance. Now just imagine the scene. You no longer hear the roar of the wind and the waves. There's almost this eerie silence as you survey the scene. You look and see these horses rolling up on the shore, the bodies of soldiers, these twisted chariots. It's worse than the aftermath of a Category 5 hurricane. And then you look around and you hug your kids and your, your wife or your husband and your family is safe. Nobody's pursuing you anymore. Now, what does the nation do when they find that they've been delivered by God? Well, this is what we read in Exodus chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And this is really interesting. Apparently, this is the first song recorded in the Bible where we actually have the lyrics. And this song is mentioned at the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation. It says that they sang the song of Moses. And I think what is being inferred here is that when we get home to heaven, guess what? We're going to sing this song because this song brings honor and glory to God. So let me just read the lyrics because we'll probably need to know them. I don't know if they're going to have any song sheets in heaven. But here are the lyrics. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And I love this, this statement. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. I remember talking to the worship team week before last. It was on a Sunday morning. And I said, you know what? Some of the most powerful times of worship I've ever had is when my heart was breaking, when I was in a situation and I had no idea how it was going to work out but I knew that God wanted me to praise him anyway. And when we come here on Sunday mornings, you know, it could be that things are going well in your life. It could be that you just don't know what you're gonna do. But wherever you are, remember that you're there because God's placed you there or allowed you to be there. And what he wants you to do is to praise him anyway, believing that he is the God who delivers in his way and in his time. And church, let me just close with this thought. I was, I was praying this week about how to kind of land the plane, you know, in the sermon. And I thought about this, this story. When I was a kid, I loved to play Little League Baseball. Any baseball fans here, by the way? Okay, good. I'm good company. When we were kids, it was really interesting. And if you know anything about Little League Baseball, you know the scores can be, scores can be so lopsided, Right? I mean, you could be 20, 20 runs down in one inning, and there's no mercy rule like there is in softball. You know, if you get 10 runs behind, you just automatically lose the game. And so I was playing on this team. I was 12 years old, and um, this coach that we had was, looking back, somebody who had great influence in my life. And when we were losing by a lot of runs, you could just tell how discouraged the team was because we had this whole team of 12-year-olds who would take the field like this. We'd be shuffling our feet, our shoulders are down. We'd be looking, you know, at the ground, just kicking the dirt, right? We're never going to win. They're going to kill us, right? 
And from the dugout, we would hear our coach shout these four words. And, and first of all, you need to know that he was passionate about baseball. He played Major League Baseball, and for him, losing was never an option. <laughs> and so we'd be out there like this, and the coach from the dugout would, would yell these four words, Get your head up! And it was hilarious. You'd see these, all, all these boys <laughs> just pop up like this. And then, you know, another batter would get up, and he'd get a hit, and then... Pfft, we're all discouraged again. And what was funny is the coach would actually single us out by name, and I played center field. And so I could hear the coach yell my name all the way from the dugout, Hodges, get your head up! And I would. And I knew that the coach wanted to remind us, it doesn't matter what the score is. You always can find a way to come back, even when there seems to be no way. And church, listen, I think that God wants me to communicate a message to you this morning from his heart to yours whatever's happening in your life and here's the message are you ready get your head up seriously I say that in love get your head up because there is a God who loves you get your head up and keep your eyes on Jesus because we serve a God who can still make a way where there seems to be no way Let's pray. God, I thank you for those words because, Lord, I know that's exactly what you want us to do, to get our head up and keep our eyes on Jesus because that's what your word says. That as we run this, this race of life, we have to remember what Jesus went through so we don't get discouraged and give up. God, please help us do that today. I pray that every single person in this room would be able to lift their heads as they walk out these doors and keep their eyes on Jesus. And Father, I want to pray this too. Um, Lord, whenever your word is preached, wherever your story is told, there are always these opportunities for people to decide to follow Jesus. And Lord, every week we want to give people the opportunity to do that. And so this morning, God, as people's heads are bowed, if there's somebody here who, who's just realizing, hey, I need a new life. I need hope. And I know that I need Jesus. I pray that they would just talk to you, God, in their own way and just say, Lord, I, I've done things that are wrong. We both know that. I've made a mess of my life and I want you to forgive me because I believe Jesus died for my sins and came back to life and I want to follow him. God, you always, always honor that prayer. You run to rescue us just as you rescued Israel. So Father, this morning, would you continue that, that rescue because it never stops, God. Would you rescue us completely day after day, week after week, year after year and make us a people, God, who want to tell others about being rescued so that you can rescue them too. And Lord, finally, we just want to thank you for being the way. When it seems there's no way, you're the way. Lord, when we were lost, you showed us the way. When we were lied to, you told us the truth. Lord, when we were dying, you gave us your life. And for that, we praise you. So God, as we stand and sing this last song, may it be this, this bold declaration that we know beyond any doubt that Jesus is the way. May you be glorified and honored as we sing to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's stand and honor God.